0: Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Biden infrastructure plan. And Richard, we've got this big new infrastructure proposal from the Biden administration, $2 trillion price tag. We can get into the specifics of that in a moment, but I'd actually like to start with this topic at the the principles level. And he, here's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Classical liberals like yourself believe that an awful lot of things that the government does should be left to the private sector. Infrastructure, however, is one area where that, that sometimes gets a little murkier, some disagreement amongst libertarians about how much of a role – government should play here. H- how do you think about that question?
1: Well, the first thing is you have to figure out what counts as infrastructure and that's not so easy to do. Uh, the best definition is one that comes from a long time ago by a man named Jacob Viner. And he says, almost in a circular fashion, that infrastructure are the kinds of things that government has to do because it's virtually impossible for any private uh, enterprise to do them. And everybody knows that they have to be happy to have to ha- that. They know that they have to happen. And so if you start looking at this, Kind of stuff. Infrastructure are the sorts of things which essentially are long and skinny in the classic case. It's pipelines turn out to be infrastructure, electricity turns out to be infrastructure, and so forth roads turn out to be infrastructure, and railroads turn out to be infrastructure, well, the question is, does the government have to do them? And one of the things you can have is have the government build this up. Another thing that you can do is have the government uh, basically create one entity that is capable of doing this in an efficient fashion, and then regulate the price that it's going to have. Uh, So what you can do is you could say, oh, we need public roads. We could do it either by way of freeways, or what we could do is we could license a private party to build that road, and then all authorize it to charge a kind of a fee sufficient to cover its cost and to give it a normal rate of return, but not higher. During the 19th century, there were many kinds of cases that involved this. Building bridges, for example, would be one. And the standard formula that they used is that we know we have to subsidize you to get this bridge up. Uh, What we're going to do is have you build it. We'll let you charge fairly high tolls until you've covered your initial cost. And then what we do is we allow you to charge fees that are equal to the marginal cost for future customers' coming in there. And so the Charles River Bridge and the Warren Street Bridge that you start to see in Cambridge were illustrations of that particular method. Uh, so it turns out that if you have these kinds of things, you're going to see uh, libertarians, at least classical liberals, uh, think that the government's going to be there. The argument in many cases is, well, you really want to put together a public road, you're going to have this huge eminent domain problem, uh, because if you have hundreds and hundreds of people whose land you have to assemble, uh, voluntary organizations may not do it. Uh, so at the very least, you need either the government condemnation power or the threat of that condemnation power exercised by private parties in order to achieve that end. Now, this is a relatively narrow class of cases, but it's not a trivial class of cases. As I mentioned, if you start to figure out the percentage of the economy that's tied up in pipelines, public utilities, uh, railroads, and so forth, uh, you can see that infrastructure is a very vital piece. And when you teach courses in regulated industries and when you teach courses in government activities, uh, this Tends to be one of the focuses of those discussions.
0: Okay, turning to the Biden plan specifically, one of the things that jumps out at you, if you spend even a few moments looking at the specifics of this, is how capaciously the administration is defining infrastructure. And in fact, this has been something of a running joke on social media the past few days. Let me give you one quote that's indicative of the approach here. This is Cecilia Rouse, the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisers, quoted in the New York Times on the fact that things like home health care are included in this bill. Quote, I couldn't be going to work if I had to take care of my parents. How is that not infrastructure. How do you answer that question?
1: Well, I mean, the same way you do, I start to laugh when I hear it. If that's the definition of infrastructure, there isn't anything that isn't infrastructure. And so therefore, what the government ought to do is to provide for everything. Uh, There is, I think, another way of looking at this, which actually has the virtue of accuracy, is we distinguish between two kinds of things. We can distinguish between transfer payments of which the child care assistance or the parent assistance turns out to be one. And then we think about how you finance him infrastructure. And they're completely different in terms of their long-term implications. A transfer payment goes from me to you or in the other direction, and then it's typically consumed, and that's the end of it. There's no other asset that's created. When you start funding infrastructure, there's a very long and learned dispute about actually how you pay for it. But under one model, what you do is you say that you can issue revenue bonds uh, in order to finance the situation, and those bonds can only be paid from the tolls that are collected through its operation. And the theory is that it gives you some kind of financial discipline so you don't waste money on infrastructure. Just calling something infrastructure doesn't mean it's something that ought to be built or constructed. It only says it's in the class of things that matter. But if it's the classical highway to nowhere, you don't want to build it. But if it turns out it's a major throughway through a city center, which you really have to have in order to cap a you have to do it. And financing this way, is a way to do it. The argument against it is, well, you know, infrastructure is used for lots of things that are not paid traffic. You have to get the military to go across it, fire trucks, police departments, and all the rest of it. And so maybe you want to put some of it on the general budget and then figure out how you match the two things. But infrastructure and transfer payments are the exact opposite. And and it's almost farcical that she would kind of make a statement like that, uh, expecting somebody to be gullible enough to believe it. Uh, In fact, one of my views about this in general is that the Biden program would be a lot more palatable to talk about if you unbundled all the different components and ask about them one at a time instead of trying to jam down 400 million dollars worth of billion dollars worth of transfer payments on the grounds that you're going to spend a bunch of money on roads and by the way there's no guarantee since it's the biden administration or any other government that just because they're going to allocate it to infrastructure mean that it's going to be worth the uh, amount you're going to get it's going to be worth doing given the amount that payback that you're going to get infrastructure Could be wasted just as any other kind of investment can be wasted.
0: In your defining ideas piece on this, you criticize the transfer payments here by saying the following They increase the motivation to stay out of the workforce and thereby reduce the size of the tax base as overall expenditures are mushrooming. A correct analysis seeks to determine whether such payments are directed toward the truly needy and whether they induce people to leave the workforce to become tax recipients rather than taxpayers, close quote. There are some factions, interestingly enough, this is sort of a new development on the right, who contest that broader point, who say we give labor force participation an elevated status when we're thinking about public policy that it doesn't deserve. So let me read something to you. This is Chris Bushkirk writing at American Compass. He's talking about a slightly different topic, which is the federal child allowance, but the same principle applies here. This is what he writes. For conservatives... I'd ask, what is this country's top priority? Is it keeping as many parents and potential parents engaged in wage work, or is it more children being raised by their parents? Let me offer this answer. We want more families, more family stability, and more children. The success of family policy should be judged by those criteria. Discussion of the impact on consumption, GDP, wage work, and so forth. Miss the point entirely. Let me go a step further and suggest that if fewer parents were forced to lean into cubicle culture and were able to have more children and spend more time raising them, the country would be much better off. He says elsewhere that were a child allowance to allow more parents to leave wage labor to raise their children, that sounds like a feature not a bug. How do you respond to arguments like that?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think the argument is he may be right or wrong, but this is not an infrastructure payment. And the question is whether or not you wish to subsidize childcare. I have very mixed emotions about all of that, because to some extent, when you subsidize one group of individuals, you have to ask the next question, who's going to pay for it on the other side, uh, so that you now have a higher tax base, you have a smaller workforce that's going to be out there. And what you do is you discourage those many successful families, in which what you do is you have parents who are able to combine work on the one hand with family raising on the other hand. So it's not at all clear exactly the way this thing works. Also, very large demographic trends, which I think this doesn't address. Uh, One of the most conspicuous features, of course, is when do people start to marry? Uh, When I was growing up in 1960, the marriage age for women was about 20 or 21, for men was about 23. And you started having families as you reached early middle age, around 25, uh. It is very, very common today to have couples who are together for very long periods of time who don't get married until they're um, in their early 30s. And so at that particular point, uh, the ability to have three or four children is severely compromised by age. And it's also a kind of an inclination. So I think one of the problems that you have in this situation is there are lots of people who think having a single child is the best way to go or having no children at all. Uh, If you look at other countries like Italy and so forth, where they have fairly generous programs. You still have extremely low birth rates in these cases, precisely because people are sort of opting out it for other reasons. So I don't know whether or not the, the transfer payments that he wants to have is going to make a huge difference. It will certainly make some difference with respect to these cases. Uh, but again, I would have another solution, which I would say, is if you actually look at the workplace and you see the way in which employers treat the women who have children of childbearing age, uh, what they will do is go to enormous lengths to make some kind of a accommodations. At least they're free to do so. Uh, So they say, okay, you can have child care at the workplace and we will provide facilities. We'll give you some kind of a subsidy. We'll give you various kinds of leaves. We'll give you flexible hours. Uh, We'll allow you to work from home and so forth. And generally speaking, I think rather than using a heavy-handed government policy to achieve that, uh, Women who have this particular kind of preference can negotiate this kind of deal because I think today most employers are relatively aware of it. What do you give up if you take this kind of deal as a woman? Typically, the answer is you're not going to make it to the C suite uh, because those people have to be essentially 24 7 type operators, be on call at every time. Uh, uh, but you're not going to make it to the top of the sweet seat if you just dropped out of the workforce altogether. So I think, in fact, it's uh, mistaken of him to say that we have to have these all or nothing solutions. I think market flexibility that gives you mixed solutions may be a more effective way to approach this problem. But I certainly agree. I mean, right now, it turns out that the birth rate is down. The last observation I was making is there were no such subsidy programs of this particular sort back in the baby boomer period, say, between 1946 and 1962, and we had very, very high birth rates. So that suggests that there's something else going on and that the subsidies are simply an effort to try to stop a problem which has much more deep and complex causes.
0: Richard, there's an awful lot of this infrastructure bill that's directed towards electric cars, and you're critical of this in your defining ideas column, but but from an angle a little different than people might anticipate. Your argument here is that you can take the issue of vehicle emissions seriously and still think that going all in on electric cars is not a reasonable response to that. I- explain that for us.
1: Well, look, it turns out this is the question about taxes and subsidies. Um, and what happens is let's suppose that you're somebody who commits a, a serious externality. If, in fact, we can price what that externality is and we can make pretty good estimates, you could build that into the cost of the road, the cost of the car, the cost of the gasoline. And so what will happen is you reduce this. This will make this particular alternative a little bit more expensive so that other alternatives, will be more attractive. The question is, which of these alternatives is the one that we want to do? And there's no way that you can tell by worrying about smoke from cars, whether you want this to be buses, high-speed rail transport, electric cars, bicycles, or just simply greater athletic efforts in walking or people relocating. If you start giving the subsidy, um, what it does is you don't know whom to subsidize amongst these various alternatives. And there's no reason whatsoever to think that you want to subsidize electrical cars as opposed to anything else. So, uh, to take a simple kind of an example, some people they can make hybrid cars and they use some gas, they use some electric kind of different, um, Maybe that's a better alternative when you take into account the reduced pollution and the lower cost than is the other thing. So by subsidizing this stuff, um, what you're doing is you're using in the name of environmental control a kind of an industrial policy in which the government's out there trying to pick winners. And generally speaking, it does a very, very bad job of that. If you want to figure out how to get electric cars on the road, you're going to get a much more sober estimate of this by having private firms subsidize or not subsidize, but actually invest in these companies and then put them out, demanding a return. Uh, Remember, uh, some forms of solar or wind energies actually have very serious externalities themselves. I don't think that's necessarily the case with electric cars, but it's certainly the case with wind power and with solar energy. They're very pronounced. And the last thing you want to do is to subsidize those things by ignoring the externalities that they start to create. Uh, So the standard prescription on this is you control an externality by taxing it. You do not control an externality by trying to figure out which of the many multitude potential competitors are one that the government ought to subsidize. You always stay out of the subsidy game when you're dealing with externalities in an unrelated industry.
0: Let's close on this note. You mentioned in the piece the Biden administration's desire to finance this partially through increasing the corporate tax rate, go back up from 21% to 28%. And I want to hear your diagnosis of that, but I also want you to weigh in on another aspect of this, which is the criticism you often hear of that approach is, you know, you raise those rates, people are going to move their capital elsewhere. And the Biden administration believes it has an answer to that, which is that Janet Yellen, the secretary of the Treasury, has called for a global minimum tax in which countries would band together to set a tax floor so that companies wouldn't have the ability to move out to lower tax jurisdictions. What's your reaction
1: to that? I think it's suicidal in, in many ways. I mean, first of all, it will not work. The more companies that are willing to go under that umbrella, the greater the gain to a company or a country or a company that stays out of it. Uh, but also, it's just a wrong policy in principle. It's going to ask yourself the question if we have a prisoner's dilemma, my tax rates and your tax rates, do we want them both high or do we want them both low? And the famous example that I like from Milton Friedman he says, well, it turns out you've got a hole in the front of the boat and water's starting to to come in and the top of the back of the boat starting to go up. So there are two ways to cure it. And one way is to punch a hole in the back of the boat so the whole thing sinks. That's like putting on extra taxes on other countries. Or the other thing you could do is to patch the first hole so the boat will actually float. What she's doing, in effect, is trying to say, we have a bad policy in America, but it's going to be less painful us if you adopt the same kind of silly policy with respect to what you have. So then you start looking and you ask the question of what's the effect of these various kinds of tax cuts. Uh, Phil, Graham and Michael Early had a very nice column on this in the Wall Street Journal this week. I think generally Graham is probably the most reliable person in dealing with these kinds of issues. And you have to remember this, something that the tax is formally imposed on one party or reduced on one party, but the incidence of the gain of the burden is going to shift through market forces. And sure enough, if you start reducing the kinds of taxes that are going to be placed on corporate profits, you're going to increase the amount of money that's available for investment. When you increase the amount of money that's available, for investment. You'll basically create new jobs by funding capital infrastructure notice that word again, uh, that are made or long-term investments made by private companies uh, so that you expect to see wages start to grow. If you do it in the opposite direction, there's nothing whatsoever that says that these companies will not be able to pass on any of the losses to other individuals. There will be lower aggregate demand, so there will be lower wages. It will turn out, therefore, that the whole system will start to sort of ratchet downward. We have to remember back in the uh, good old Obama days where they were extremely pro-labor, they had every kind a subsidy that you can imagine for labor guys. And wages went up extremely slowly. Trump did the other policy and things start to go up more rapidly. It is a sign of great democratic politics. You actually have the data as to the bad outcomes of the Obama policies of sort of labor preferences for unions, high minimum wages, and all the rest of that stuff as against the more laissez-faire power faculty. And then you see this generation doing it again. I mean, I have to say, I'm very disappointed in the performance of Janet Yellen. I I think she really ought to know more about what's going on. And this is just a case in which uh, when she was the head of the Fed, she did a little bit better, I think. But in this situation, I think she's just letting her uh, sort of bad corporatist instincts take over. Uh, She thinks that she could run this country from the center. And she thinks that the United States ought to run the world. We really do not need anything of this particular sort. If anything, we have to go back to the policies of Adam Smith. What you want to do is to make sure that you have free trade in every conceivable direction, because if it turns out you've got local monopolies, they may be very difficult to dislodge by deregulation and the like. But boy, oh boy, if you flood the system with competitive products that consumer prefer at a lower price, those monopoly rents will go way down. And so what she should be encouraging is more competition rather than more corporate control by an administration, which I'm sorry to say seems to be uh, creating one economic disaster after another. Uh, she and the infrastructure bill are both better forgotten.
0: You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.